Go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now. Runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome back to the Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. The Green Dot, sponsored by GE Aviation. I'm Hal Bryan. I'm the senior editor here at AEAA for print and digital content and publications and one of your hosts. On my left, filling in for the inimitable but not here, Chris Henry is... Hi, Joe Norris here. I'm the EAA flight training manager. And over there across the table where he belongs... Tom Charpentier, Government Relations Director. Excellent. And we've got a uh, great guest with us uh, joining us in the studio today. It's Mr. Steve Krogh. So, Steve, we're glad you're here. Glad to be here, Hal. Steve is a longtime flight instructor. He's a uh, columnist for Sport Aviation Magazine, so I, I feel like I'm reading your words almost all the time. And I mean that in a good way. Reading, not uh, slashing and deleting, bear in mind. And uh, you're also the, uh, what did we say, you're the Cub King, you're the Cub Czar, you're the, uh, you're the brains, brawn, and good looks behind uh, Cub Air Flight down in Hartford, Wisconsin? I don't know about the brains and brawn, but definitely the good looks. Okay, well, we just took a vote around the table, and you got one vote, okay. so congratulations on that. Three to one, that's not bad. <laughs> that's not bad. So you're saying there's a chance. There's a chance, yes. <laughs> so welcome, Steve. Thank you. So today, uh, rather than uh, sort of doing the typical uh, hard-hitting, journalistic, uh, grueling interview that this show is certainly uh, well not known for at all, um, <laughs> we wanted to have another kind of round-the-table discussion. The weather's getting nice, finally. Um, at the time we're recording this, we are less than two weeks away from one of the worst snowstorms in uh, Wisconsin history. Uh, some of us can still, is, is that right, two weeks? Yep, uh, yeah, right. some of us still yeah. feel that in our shoulders and backs from the, the shoveling and snow blowing. But then uh, yesterday it was uh, 78 degrees and sunny. So it is definitely uh, spring flying weather. So we want to talk about uh, uh, some advice and some tips and maybe some of our own experiences. If you haven't flown much over the winter um, or if you, if you haven't flown uh, at all in a while. A lot of us, as we go through life, things happen, things get in the way. And we end up uh, spending what we would all consider to be too much time on the ground. So maybe uh, we'll give you uh, the privilege there, Steve. If I came to you as somebody uh, who has, let's start with the sort of the slower period. So, you know, we had a rough winter in Wisconsin, which we didn't necessarily, but um, it's been a few months since I've flown. I just don't feel uh, all that current. Maybe I need a flight review, uh, which as a matter of fact, I do have, have that coming up soon. So talk to me about what, uh, what you would do for me as uh, you as the instructor and me as the, as the pilot who hasn't been up in a while. Well, Hal, if you came to me with, uh, with that kind of a, a background or a setup, uh, the first thing I would do is say, okay, here's what, uh, what I think we should do. And that is um, you know, do the normal things first on the ground, uh, go through a very good pre-flight Assuming that at this point, if you, if you own an airplane, you've probably spent, at least here in Wisconsin this last month, cleaning and polishing, waiting for the snow to melt. <laughs> Maybe unfreezing the hangar door. Unfreezing the hangar door. That's a That's, lot of that. That was new to me as a, as a transplant to the Midwest, <laughs> is the concept of a hangar or garage door just being frozen to the ground. But, it, but as far as uh, flight goes, and let's say this is the... Uh, the first flight of the, sea, uh, the season for uh, the pilot, first flight of the season for the airplane. Um, after the, doing a good pre-flight, I always like to take a little extra time uh, when doing the run-up. Give the systems a really good chance to, uh, to warm up, 
clear themselves and uh, just make sure everything is, is functioning properly. And then as far as the flight is concerned, what I like to do is, um, and I do this myself if I haven't uh, flown in the last, anywhere from the last two weeks to the last six or eight weeks, I'll go up and climb up to about 2,500 feet above the ground, level off, trim up the airplane, and uh, start out by doing some what I call medium bank turns, 30 degree bank turns. And just concentrating on, on my uh, aileron rudder input and holding my altitude and just doing them 90 degrees one way, then 90 degrees another way. And getting the feel of the airplane back, getting the uh, coordination back. And once you've done that, uh, step it up one, uh, one notch and start doing some 45 or steep turns. And uh, the same thing, 90 or 180 degrees in, in each direction. Again, getting the feel of the airplane back and getting the feel back in, in uh, you as a pilot, your, your inputs, and uh, trying to become one with, with the airplane again. The hardest thing to do, I think, at that point is to do um, a shallow bank turn. So you get too impatient. <laughs> that's, that's an excellent point. And, you know, something else you said really struck me. That you said... You know, I gave you this hypothetical about about you and I flying together, but you mentioned, you know, something you might do when you haven't flown for a while, and you said even, you know, in as little as, as two weeks, you might be feeling rusty. And I think that's that's an important consideration because I I know you as a as a longtime experienced pilot with a with a great reputation as an instructor and all these other things, and you've certainly trained a lot of people. I think, uh, you know. Uh, a lower time private pilot who's been away for a, even a little while, um, maybe thinking in their own heads, you know, wow, well, I, I, I'm just an inexperienced kid at this whole thing. Um, certainly, a, an experienced pilot, uh, you know, wouldn't ever feel a little bit of rust, uh, rust on their skills. But it's, it sounds like that's true for all of us. Yeah, it uh, definitely. Hell, I, uh, I notice it in myself. I mean, of course, a person that's done a lot of flying, you kind of get used to how it should feel and how you remember it feeling in that but you get up in the airplane the first time in the spring especially after a longer layoff and you can tell that you know things aren't as fluid things aren't really uh, as natural uh, and you kind of got to think about it a little bit more rather than things coming to you um, more naturally or more uh, fluidly so you can feel it uh, if you pay attention to what you're doing while you're doing it you can pick up on the fact that you know this is it needs to scrape the rust off a little bit. I can agree with that, Joe. It, uh, and a lot of times, the, a lower time pilot uh, doesn't necessarily pick up on this right away, um, in, in my opinion. It's something that you acquire through experience. But uh, certainly in, in, in my own case, I can tell if I haven't uh, flown for three or four weeks that I'm just, you know, like just that half a click off in that good aileron rudder input to keep the ball in the center, rolling in, rolling out of the turns, that kind of thing. So, and, and what I try to do, not only with myself, but I challenge my students um, this all the time, is that never be satisfied. You've got to be your own toughest critic. If you go up and uh, practice a couple medium bank 90-degree turns, um, by the book, if you were doing a private pilot check ride, you've got plus or minus 50 feet or 100 feet to work with. 
I don't allow myself that. I limit it to uh, 20 feet. And, uh, you know, plus or minus, uh, you know, five degrees or less. And uh, just to challenge yourself. Be your own toughest critic. So let me ask you this. Uh, I, um, I certainly find myself doing the, the same thing, although my, my standards, if I've been away for a while, my standards might be a little looser to begin with, <laughs> get better and better. But, uh, you know, plus or minus 180 degrees on my rollouts, that kind of thing. Um, but uh, maybe to, to put up a little bit of a straw man, um, challenging yourself like that, being your own toughest, toughest critic, do you still have fun when you fly? Definitely. Very definitely. So that does, it's, not, it's not a negative thing for you. It's not, oh, not, not take, at all. not sucking the fun out of it at that point. Not at all. It's, it's, it's a contest. That's a great way to think of it. There's it's a, part of the fun, really. Yeah. I mean, yeah. uh, you challenge yourself, and, and uh, you really get some great satisfaction when you meet that challenge. You can say, boy, that was really right on the money. You know, It just really mm-hmm. makes you feel really good. And if, I just wish somebody was here to see it. <laughs> Congratulate me on it. I always make really great landings when there's nobody there to see them. Yeah, exactly. just, they're perfect yes. every time. Yes. So, um, you know, you're, you're making uh, allusions to um, – staying in coordination with, with turns and things like that. Uh, do you think that is the most perishable skill, um, staying in coordination, altitude control, bank control, um, that kind of thing, is overall with aviation? Uh, I would say that, that it's certainly not the primary, that it's, it's a very close second. Coordination is, is important to flying an airplane well. Many of these airplanes will fly but it takes coordination to make them fly well. You know, there's the old adage about the J3 Cub, and that is that it is the easiest airplane in the world to fly, but it is also the most difficult airplane there is to fly well. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, you're talking about coordination and things, uh, sort of a two-part question. Number one, um, would you uh, would you agree if, if I said that... Uh, that's it. Maybe put it this way: at least more important uh, in a, a tailwheel airplane versus sort of hopping in a 172. It all depends on your training, and and uh, from where you came. Right. The, uh, the I'll, I'll use this uh, for a comparison that kind of leads up to where I'm coming from on this. Hal, I can take two individuals. One starts in a J3 Cub, the other one starts in a Cessna 152. At 10 hours, I'll solo the one in the 152. At 10 hours, I'll solo the one in the Cub. Now we're going to swap places. And it'll take 10 hours for the 152 pilot to solo the Cub. It'll take about 45 minutes for the Cub pilot to solo a 152. That's that's. Fascinating. That's those are really, uh, really good numbers. And of course, I think all of us around the room here are tailwheel pilots, and uh, and and certainly feel that uh, you know that appreciation. But uh, but that's that's a powerful lesson right there. I think everybody should should start that direction. Now you you did say that coordination was kind of second place, if I if I heard you right. Yeah, so, where I was going with that, Hal, is that uh, certainly we all get a little bit rusty on our coordination, but. Probably the primary uh, thing that that we lose, and it comes back fairly quickly most of the time, is remembering to think and stay ahead of the airplane. Uh. It's real easy to get up there and start to concentrate on where that ball is at. You forget to look around. You forget to fly the airplane. 
you know, it's uh, it, it's funny you talk about thinking because there's an aspect to this, the sort of the psychology of this is kind of fascinating to me. Um, and I mainly, it's certainly something I see in myself and, and uh, we'll find out very quickly around the table whether I'm alone in this or not. But if I've been away from flying for a while, I've got to contend with kind of two extremes. Um, you know, number one is the, gosh, I haven't flown in forever. I probably don't even remember how to open the door and get into the airplane. You know, I'm so rusty, I'm going to be terrible at this. And then the other extreme is, you know, don't worry about this. You've done it a lot. It's, you know, it's all going to come back to you immediately. So there's the there's the potential underconfidence, the potential overconfidence. Now, hopefully in, in, in me, if my multiple personalities work it out, it kind of balances out and I've got an appropriate level of caution, but I'm not just throwing my arms up in despair and saying, well, I haven't flown in a while, you know, there's no point in even trying. I'll be so awful at it. But I, I'm wondering, just even around the table, if, if you guys have ever felt anything similar. Well, one of the things that I think uh, the pilot has to make the decision is, you know, if it's been a couple of weeks or a month or even a couple of months, yeah, you feel a little rusty, but it's still current enough in your mind that you can get in the airplane and, and you run through your checklist and everything starts to feel fairly comfortable. And you, and you look out the window as you're taxing out and you kind of start getting that sight pictures like oh yeah I remember what this looks like and it all comes rolling back to you kind of incrementally and and pretty soon it's like oh all right yeah I've, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about this but you reach a point where you get to that point like you mentioned where I don't even know if I can do this anymore and the longer you wait in between the last flight that you had and the flight you're going to make today the more that feeling starts to take over and sometimes uh, the prudent pilot just needs to make the decision hey I really ought to go and jump in an airplane with an instructor and, and just make a couple laps of the pattern just to have that extra little piece of confidence sitting in the other seat that if I really really screw this up somebody will be there to uh, correct me and uh, keep the thing going in the right direction so sometimes the prudent pilot just has to make that decision to uh, get some some expert advice and, and kind of get the, the boat sailing back in the right direction so to speak <laughs> sometimes uh, I, I, I agree with that Joe and, and what you run into is, the, is is a situation where a lot of these uh, pilots and, and take it you know we're part of a very elite group being pilots, less than one tenth of one percent, something like that. So, yeah, we think we're kind of special sometimes. Uh, <laughs> I think I, I'm fantastic. <laughs> I just want to—I want to go on record right now. I am amazing. Now, I and I—I I, I do say so yourself. Yeah, yes, I'm the only one. So somebody had to. <laughs> and I don't mean that in a in a uh, an egotistical sort of way, but it it gets in the way sometimes of an individual saying, you know, I'm a little rusty. I really should go get an instructor and ride around a right. patch with me a few times just to knock some of the rust off. And I think if, if uh, people were to, or pilots were just a little more receptive to that, you'd find that uh, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of the hangar flyers would do a lot more flying if they would get out and get a half hour here or a half hour there of, of uh, a safety pilot slash instructor riding with him and going through some of the maneuvers and, and um, just pointing out some of the things. I, I do a lot of flight reviews with uh, individuals that fly anywhere from 20 hours a year to several hundred hours a year. And anything less than about 75 hours, I find they're uh, oftentimes either very rusty on pilot usage or in the previous, uh, or since the uh, flight review was done two years previous, 
have taught themselves some, some bad habits through being a little bit lazy. And they forget to use the rudder pedals, particularly in tailwheel airplanes. You run into that uh, quite a lot. Yeah, I think when I had my last uh, flight review, I specifically asked to get some training or to do the review in the airplane I'm probably most comfortable in because I was concerned that uh, I, you know, I, over the last, you know, I think I have like 200, 300 hours in the, uh, it's RV6A that we have here at, at EAA, um, that I taught myself some, uh, some, some bad habits. So um, I think that's really important that even if you do feel proficient, um, you need to check that against an external source uh, to make sure that that's true. Um, and then, yeah, I, I think, to, you know, to your original point, Hal, about, um, you know, feeling kind of the balance between overconfidence and, and, and lack of confidence. Uh, um, I guess I'd been away from, I'm a very, still a very low time tailwheel pilot. And I'd been away from that for a very long time. And I, yeah, even though it's technically legal for me to get into the airplane <laughs> and if I, <laughs> if I can make it around the past three times without ground looping, I'm legal to carry passengers again. Uh, we could do an entire episode on legal versus safe. Right. I, I think that's <laughs> true. We can, all, we can all agree on that. Yeah. Uh, yeah I, I, I had to go up with somebody to, to make sure I still remembered how to do it. I actually surprised myself with, uh, with how much I did remember, but you, you really do have to do that. You know, I was going to, I was going to make that, that same point of when I have been away for a while, um, and coming back or, or, and a lot of times that might coincide with a flight review, depending on how it's worked or something. But I find that, that, uh, there's some percentage, we'll just call it 70, 30, like, uh, 70% of the flight, I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised at how much came back. And, you know, yes, I really do remember where everything is and, and how this all works. And, and then maybe 30%, um, I'm a little surprised at, at, uh, how rusty I was, mm-hmm. you know, at how, uh, mm-hmm. how, uh, unsmooth that landing might uh, might have turned out that sort of thing yeah talk about um you know skills that are uh, they're maybe a little bit more perishable one of them for me i think is the intuitiveness of of kind of picking up in your head a mental picture of where everybody is around the airport that's something that for me takes a little bit of practice you know um just directionally and um that was I, I just it's just one of those little one-off things but I went up after after a while being away from it and I got really confused even at a towered airport where a particular aircraft you know a particular other aircraft in the pattern was um, you know it's it's uh, it's little things like that that uh, maybe you you know the fundamental skills well enough to be safe but it's uh, it's the the little stuff on the periphery that uh, that you kind of have to to keep um, proficient with I Tom I can really agree with that particularly flying out of a an uncontrolled field like we have at Hartford. If you've been away from it for, well, in our case here, the last couple of months due to weather now, those first couple flights, uh, <clears throat> you've lost your, uh, your ability to pick out aircraft to, uh, in the air. You're, you start to sc- remember to scan, but you start scanning too fast. Oh, right. And you're not, you know, you're looking but not seeing kind of thing. And it just it takes a few flights or a few hours for individuals to uh, kind of get back in that that groove where they can uh, really pick out traffic and know where they're at. Well, like uh, you mentioned, Tom. Yeah, well, I think it actually has to do a little bit with it has to do with with uh, how you're directing your attention, because I think, you know, when you're um, when you're a little bit rustier on the on the fundamental skills, I think you're spending more time thinking about that stuff. Than, you're, than you are thinking about the stuff down the list that's still important, but you need to have a, 
attention available to allocate. Yeah, you get a little you know? bit of tunnel vision because yeah. you have to devote more of your thought process to doing things that may start to come a little more naturally once you get you know a few hours, recent hours under your belt. And then once you get to that point, then you can start to expand and you realize that um, you can you know, spend more time looking for traffic. You can spend more time, you know, just get your situational awareness in your head and it all starts to flow a little bit better. But, you know, those first couple of flights after you've had a long layoff, it takes a lot of mental power just to really try to remember the fundamentals of flying the airplane properly. Well, you use that important term there, Joe, situational awareness. And, and Tom and Steve, you're both talking about that um, kind of from two different uh, angles, which I thought was pretty interesting. Tom, you're talking about... Uh, um, kind of having the, the mental picture of where other traffic is. And I sort of took that to mean that, that you're listening to maybe other aircraft on the radio, you know, you're, the tower uh, might be clearing somebody to land, you know, they're number two on base and you're just still taxiing to take off. And I'm uh, thinking about that, Steve, and you're talking about using your eyes and looking around at an uncontrolled airport, but you're hearing people doing radio calls, uh, you know, that they're entering on a 45 for the downwind or what have you. And uh, and both of those types of things, both your, your visual and, and then your, uh, your ability to build that mental picture like you were talking about, um, you know, those are, are skills that to me, I think, can get get very rusty very quickly. Um, and and that's when you when you really start to feel it. And I think, you know, and that's when you start to sort of get behind the airplane. It's like we were we were all saying that uh, you don't want to sit there and and think, gosh, if, he, if the tower said that person's at my 10 o'clock and it's low, I'm looking over there. You know, it's, that, that's got to be instinctive and natural to you. And at the same point, you don't want to be listening to a bunch of people talking on the radio saying, well, I can't pay attention where those guys are because I'm trying to remember if you pull back to go up or you, know, you push forward to go up. Those kinds of things. Um, but uh, before we get to, get too far along, I wanted to uh, to reach into what we have decided is the official green dot mailbag. Ty, do we have a cool mailbag sound effect? I don't know what a mailbag sounds like. Just like some vague rustling. <laughs> Could you put that in in the mix? Just all right, there. That was uh, that was our uh, that was the sound of the mailbag opening. I uh, wanted to re reach out to some people on Twitter, and the, the first question here is very much in line with what we've been talking about. Uh, but maybe just throw this around the table since we've talked in depth a bit about this. But uh, maybe see if uh, each of us has a, a singular tip or something. Let's let's see where it goes. This is uh, so. It's Michael Rennick, and he says, "I'm a certified pilot who hasn't flown in over 15 years." Life happens, and it, it certainly does. Uh, so what are the recommended steps for safely getting back into it? Now, Steve, I think you, you started us off with something similar. I gave you kind of a hypothetical, but um, maybe think, concentrate on what would you do differently for, for somebody like this versus the example I gave you where, you know, yes, I fly. It's just been a few months. I'm feeling the rust, those sorts of things. What, what do we, where do we start with somebody who's been away from that long? Interesting question, Hal, because uh, I would say probably in the last 10 years, I'll have had uh, at least six or seven students each year that fall right into that category. They started flying and uh, gave it up for whatever reasons to want and make a living or what have you, and now they're in a position where they can come back and fly. Some of them have a license. Some of them were up to solo. Some of them six or seven hours is all. But what I like to do with them is that it's very important at this stage that you keep them relaxed and at ease. 
first of all. And once we're in the air, I, you know, you never, ever, ever talk down to them, ever. And I don't think, I don't care if they're on a 12-year-old uh, in a first lesson or a 77-year-old in a first lesson. Everybody's equal at that point. Now, as an instructor or any good instructor, you'll have spent a little time on the ground with the individual, getting a little background, and basically getting to know the individual and see how they, they respond to some things. You, sometimes you throw out some, some loaded comments or questions to, to see how they react. And that, as I'm sure Joe can attest to as well, gives you a little background on, on how you're going to address uh, different situations, how you're going to explain things. And I, I always try to put them at ease once we get to, in the air as well. Let's say it, it's, use the old adage of it's like a, riding a bicycle. You never forget how, it just that it, you get very, very rusty at it. So we go through things, it's nice and slow and easy. And if you can keep the individual relaxed and at ease and having fun, uh, it comes to them much more quickly and uh, they're much more satisfied with the flight than if you talk down to them or, you know, there's an old guy sitting next to me, I'm really going to get on his case kind of thing. That's, <laughs> I'm usually the, the old the, guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a little of that though. that goes on out there, unfortunately, with some of the young instructors and such that uh, haven't matured like they should. Ah, sure. But for the most part, if you can keep them relaxed and make sure that they have fun and, you know, work with them on, on some of the basics. And the sign of a good flight when you get all done is when they get back and we've shut down and we get to using the cub for all of this uh, where I'm at, and they get out of the airplane and they look back over their shoulder and say, will you take a picture of the airplane and, and, and me for me? That was Man, that was really fun. And some of that stuff really started coming back to me. Well, you know, it was a very successful flight, and they'll be back again day after tomorrow for flight number two. Right, to keep going and keep getting at it. If I had uh, sort of just one single bit of advice for Michael, it would be building on exactly what you said, uh, and that is that, uh, you know, going back to that whole underconfidence, overconfidence sort of thing, but you'll you'll get back into it. It... Uh, when you've been away that long, obviously you're going to be flying with an instructor, so you, you, you've got that terrific safety net and that wonderful learning opportunity. But, but Michael, I would guarantee you that, uh, that at, at the end of, of the day, at the end of the however many flights it takes for you to feel comfortable, you'll look back and say, I remembered more than I thought. And it wasn't as hard as I was afraid it was going to be to get back into it. That's absolutely correct. I think it's the instructor's job to, uh, as Steve said, you spend a little time getting to know the person, find out what their flying background was, even if it was 20 years ago. You know, find out, find some common ground so that you can base the the lesson that you give them uh, on some of their the stuff that they remember, even though it might be rusty and it might be far back in their memory. They're they're going to have some some anchor points that you can build on to to get their mind working again and get them back uh, thinking, you know, in more current sense. So you just use their experience and uh, kind of mold your lesson around what they remember and then just kind of bring those memories forward for them so that they start to feel comfortable. And, and uh, if you do that and they get out of the airplane with a smile on their face, you've, you've got to move it in the right direction. Hey, so, one thing along that line, I would like to just amen there a little bit, Joe. 
and that is what I try to do to put to the individual's mind at ease in those situations is that uh, I'll say, uh, when, when you learned to fly or when you were taking lessons, this, uh, they, they probably taught you to do slow flight this way. But here's how we do it now, or here's how the FAA requires that we do it now. So, so let me show you the FAA way so you know how to do it by today's standards. And it seems like it really takes the pressure off of them. I've shown them how to do it, and they're not sitting there racking their brain trying to think of, gee, I haven't done that in 22 years. I, I'm not sure if I remember how to do it, and I'm really going to embarrass myself if I just really screw this up. So you just kind of very carefully walk them through. That's a really, uh, really intriguing approach and a, and a very, uh, I can see how that, that falls in with your philosophy, really putting people at ease and making it very, you know, very straightforward. I say we cut this episode short right now. Let's go do my flight review while you're still in this good mood. <laughs> and uh... <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, and Steve, just to, to build on that, um, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, here's how we used to do it. Here's how we do it now. Um, I'll be the policy wonk in the room for just a second here and say, uh, check what uh, check what's changed in the rule book since you've been gone. Uh, <laughs> Every once in a while, there will be somebody who flies into, for example, the DC CIFRA without knowing that there is a DC CIFRA. That happens less and less nowadays, but it, but it, it did quite a bit just after it was established. There are still some, some uh, folks who fly around and uh, you know, are looking for uh, you know, TCAs and things like that. Um, Tersas, says those sorts of things. Yeah, and uh, th- don't worry about all these abbreviations. You don't need to know any of that. <laughs> Listen well, on the radio. You can define but... CIFRA for us. Okay, it's special flight re- uh, rules area, basically um, the the special security area around Washington D.C. Things like that. Um, you know, there there are some things in the rule book that have changed, and not just you know more restrictive. Also, some things that have gotten very good you know um read up on basic meds see if that's something that might work for you read up on um uh, on you know if, you, if you've been away since the sport pilot rule came into effect take a look at that see if that's something that that might interest you as far as um as far as the flight operations that you'd be doing um things like that tom there's a real easy way that i uh, to do that with students um, when they're getting back into it, because many of them will say, you know, I know all this airspace stuff has changed. I've done a little reading, and there's just all this ABC stuff, and man, I'm just so confused. I don't know what that's all about. I say, easy, look on the map, stay out of the blue circles, the magenta circles, <laughs> and the blue dotted circles until we have time to fly in them. Otherwise, just stay out of them, and you'll be just fine. The, the most fun flying is outside of those places anyway. So right. Exactly. <laughs> Dare I say the real flying. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, um, and, and I'll definitely put in a plug for our colleagues over at um, AOPA's um, uh, Air Safety Institute. They have some wonderful online courses that you can take um, as far as radio communications and uh, airspace and all, all kinds of stuff. Um, and one other thing I'd just say is being the millennial in the room, um, there's been some uh, really good, uh, uh, okay, aside from Ty, who's, who's right over here, but uh, being, being representative of Ty and myself, uh, uh, there, there's, some, there's some good uh, technology has come out in the last couple of years, particularly in the way of, um, of apps to help you navigate and things like that, depending on the kind of flying that you do. And if you're flying a Cub with no radio around southern Wisconsin, uh, you might not need this stuff, but you know, depending on where you're going, uh, it's a uh, it, it can be a good tool in your toolbox alongside everything else, including uh, all of the uh, the other uh, modes of navigation. All right, well said, Tom. And and go millennials, whatever whatever that means. <laughs> um, okay. Is that a hockey team? <laughs> I'm sure it is. All right, well, Michael, if you're out there listening, and you certainly should be, since you asked us a question. Um, 
get out there, get flying again, and send us a note. To let us know uh, when you do and how it goes, and we'd love to we'd love to hear from you. Um, all right, let's go. Let's uh, do another couple of questions here. These maybe wander a little bit off topic a bit, but I've uh, I've uh, never met a sequitur I didn't loathe. So <laughs> let's uh, let's reach out to a Twitter user. We'll just call Mr. Dumpster. And uh, he is, uh, I think he works in our marketing department because he's, he's, uh, he's saying the 2018 EA sweepstakes aircraft is a, a J3 Cub. And so, uh, and yes, you can win it if you go to ea.org slash sweepstakes. So we appreciate the little plug at the beginning there. Um, but uh, then he says, when I win it, and he has if in brackets, but uh, he's confident. The name like Dumpster, you got to be confident. Uh, <laughs> see, what are the flight characteristics of this uh, beautiful yellow airplane? What are the handling? So... Uh, I, Steve and, and Joe, to uh, both of you with high-time Cub pilots, short of saying, well, it flies like a Cub, what could, what could you say about flying a J3 <laughs> with, uh, without us doing a, like a 10-episode series about it? <laughs> uh, well, it'd probably take 10, 10 episodes to really fly it well, but it, it takes one episode to fly it. <laughs> right. Well, we've done, I don't know, 20-plus episodes of this podcast, and we're, and we're not doing this well. But hey, Ty edits it well, but otherwise, otherwise we're just making this up as we go. I always say, when, when I get questions like that from individuals, I always say, what are the first three letters in front of plane? It's A-I-R. What does that spell? Airplane. All right. There's an airplane. There's an airplane. There's an airplane. Once they're in the air, they fly like an airplane. Sure, every airplane has a little bit different characteristics, but they're an airplane. One is a little heavier on the controls than the next one. Uh, one flies a little faster and so on. But uh, when it comes to the Cub, there's just a couple things I think one needs to remember in, uh, with the Cub, and that is if you've been flying other airplanes, the Cub compared to many is very light wing loading. Consequently, it's much more affected by the wind, uh, updrafts, downdrafts, that kind of thing when it is an airplane. And um, again, much more effective by the wind uh, when you're on the ground. So you have to live by the old rule of thumb when in a tailwheel airplane, you fly it chalk to chalk. So why is it worth it then? I mean, I hate even asking that question. It's blasphemy coming from, from me. <laughs> but um, I'm going to force you to answer it. Maybe uh, maybe Joe, you'll take a stab at answering it as well. Go ahead, well. Joe. Well, the Joe, the fir first? first thing I wanted to, to comment on, on Mr. Dumpster's question was that uh, it's hard to answer that question on face value without knowing what background the, the person asking the question has. What sure. do they have to compare it to? So how does a cub fly? Well, first thing I would say is I'd answer that with the question back to the the person is, well, what have you been flying? And have them explain to me how a Cessna 150 flies in their mind or a, a Piper Cherokee in their mind. What, what, do you, what do they use to describe those flight characteristics? And I would springboard off of that and say, well, in a Cub, you're going to see these things that are very similar and you're going to see these things that are quite different. And I'd explain why. So I'd, I'd have to have them build a house and then I would 
lead them in and out of it, so to speak. <laughs> you would come in and decorate it. Exactly. As you are Ex- want to do. Exactly. So that that's how I would approach that that basic question. You have to have some common ground to start with. Otherwise, you have no way to, to explain to them how an airplane flies other than, as Steve said, well, they all know how to fly themselves, and you're just kind of guiding them in the air, and it feels a little different in this airplane or that airplane. But if they really want to know, quote, unquote, how it flies, which is a question you get a lot, you need to, you need to have some common ground to start with to answer that question. Some frame of reference. Interesting. I, I think that the the, uh, the Cub is for a lot of people kind of the quintessential uh, vintage aircraft, and I think I think that question ties a lot into flying vintage aircraft. Uh, and I think for me, coming out of out of well, basically all I'd flown before I flew a Cub was uh, was one seventy twos and one fifty twos. It's uh, it's a cliche, but it's a very pure kind of flying. Um, you know, depending on the type of aircraft, type of variant of Cub you're flying, it might not even have an electrical system. Uh, it might not even have an intercom. You might just be sitting there with earplugs making hand signals to each other. Uh, you can fly with the door open at 500 feet and smell the corn. Um, you know, it's a uh, it's a different kind of flying, I think, than a lot of people who learned in kind of the traditional way are used to. And uh, and that's as much about flying the Cub as the actual flight characteristics for me. Tom, um I'd like to just add a couple comments on on top of what you just said. I get that question a lot from individuals. They'll they'll come out and say, well, what's so special about flying a Cub? What's so neat about it? I said, well, first of all, when Old Man Piper designed this airplane, it was designed for 5'4", 125-pound pilots. So they're miserable to get in on. They're miserable to get out of. They're probably the noisiest airplane you're going to fly. And they're slow. And they're drafty. (laughs) And the most fun you will ever have (laughs) flying an airplane. You're here. You know, it's it's funny. I would, uh, when I talk to people about, you know, why would you fly tailwheel? Why would you fly open cockpit? Why would you fly any of these, you know, wonderful cantankerous older airplanes or occasionally cantankerous um, older airplanes? And I would say... uh, there's no perfect analogy, but you can talk about uh, um, motorcycles. You can talk about cars with manual transmissions, things like this. You know, Joe, I know you're an avid motorcycle rider, and it's just you're out in the open. It falls over when you stop. <laughs> you can't carry many groceries in it. Obviously, a Buick station wagon is superior in every possible way to your motorcycle. Now, as Joe murders me, <laughs> obviously that's you know that's a ridiculous argument because you're doing you're still out on the same road you're still driving something but it's an it's an entirely different experience. Yeah, it's 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 a very um, it's a very personal thing and everybody reacts to it differently. But it's just uh, there's something about it that that makes you feel different than you would be if you were driving that buick station wagon right. or whatever the case might be it's and just uh, it's just feeling that you get that you're that you're you know outside you're in control you're part of the whole surroundings rather than being encased in some vehicle someplace and, and the green dot is not sponsored by buick just with, with apologies <laughs> just to, to our that. friends there whoever whoever they may be all right well it's uh I think it's pretty safe to say that unanimously around the table uh, that we say that all pilots, uh, rusty or not, but I think particularly if you're rusty, um, if you haven't done it, you ought to go check out tailwheel flying. You ought to see what that's uh, that's like if you've never started. Uh, boy, Steve, your story at the beginning about uh, about 10 hours to solo in each direction and what, but then what it takes to swap uh, is a very powerful thing that I think everybody should remember. So definitely recommend uh, anybody out there with uh, either starting flying you know, go for a tailwheel. If you haven't flown for a while, 
um, and you you're going to fly with an instructor you want to get back into it i'm a firm believer in 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 many things in life if uh, if you have to expend sort of time and money and other resources to sort of get back to normal, whether that means getting back into flying or repairing your car or fixing your house or something like this, you ought to try to be better off than when you started. And uh, so certainly a, a personal bit of advice I would have for anybody, if you've been rusty and you've never done something like tailwheel flying or maybe it's seaplane flying or or doing some glider flying or something like that, um, is maybe consider trying something something different. Maybe not the first thing you do when you get back in the cockpit, maybe as part of that process of getting comfortable again, so that when you are back to that level, I'm flying regularly, I'm feeling comfortable, you're ahead of where you were when you stopped flying last time. Hal, um, one of the things that I try to instill in all of my students, and it falls right in line with what you just said, and that is a good pilot will never, ever stop learning. Right. And if you think you've reached that point where you're stopping learning and challenging yourself, uh, maybe it's time to take up canoeing or something because uh, <laughs> Hey, canoeing's no hard. I'm here to tell you. <laughs> You're, you're, oh, you've, you've plateaued, and now you're, uh, you're no longer a safe pilot if you're not challenging yourself. In my humble opinion, um, you, need to, you need to keep learning, and you need, need to be, again, just reemphasizing what I said earlier in being your own toughest critic. I hate it when I work with students that are just say, well, why were you 200 feet off on the downwind leg today? Well, I was close enough. <laughs> Well, if you're 200 feet to the left side of the center line of the runway, is that close enough to? How wide is the runway? 75 feet. <laughs> okay, then, yes, that's too far. <laughs> All right, well, that actually brings us to the, uh, the third and final question out of the, uh, the Green Dot, uh, Green Dot mailbag. This is from a Twitter user uh, called Benjamin. And it's an interesting one. It's, uh, it's you know, a bit farther, further afield, and that's quite all right. It's, if anyone wants to know uh, why is it so hard to find tailwheel aircraft at flight schools, and, and the same question for tailwheel qualified instructors. Now, Steve, with you in this part of the, the country, you know, Cub Air Flight is a great resource. We're lucky to have that. Those of us on staff here are especially lucky to have an instructor like Joe around and a, uh, a Cub clone in our flying club fleet so that we have access to it. Uh, where I flew out in Washington State before moving here, hello Harvey Fields, Snohomish Flying Service, they had a champ that I used to, that I rented for years and, and, uh, and loved it, champs versus cubs, go. And, uh, um, oh, Steve just gave me the look. <laughs> anyway, um, but those are the exceptions. Those aren't the rules. And why do we, uh, why do we think that is? Well, first of all, if you can't find a tailwheel school, you're not looking very hard because there's actually more of them out there than, than most people really realize. They may not be at your local airport. It may not be the easiest place to get to because it's not right down the road. But, I mean, there are several places in Wisconsin that have tailwheel instruction available. And, and if you go looking around, you'll find uh, uh, they're actually tailwheel schools are more uh, numerous than a cursory exam might might make it out so you need to do a little bit more looking and you might have to do a little bit more driving to get to it but they're out there so um, you just can't throw up your hands and say oh they don't have a tailwheel airplane at my local airport so I guess I can't learn to fly tailwheels it just takes a little bit more effort nowadays to to find that but it's out there and it's not that far away 
Hell, um, my wife and I relocated to Wisconsin in uh, the early 80s. And uh, once we got settled uh, near the Hartford Airport, I uh, went out there and found that uh, at that time, this would have been in about 1984, there were a half a dozen, uh, at that time, older guys. <laughs> I'm older than they are now. But uh, older gentlemen that had uh, tailwheel airplanes. And there was an instructor anywhere that could check them out or fly with them. And thankfully, I had some tailwheel time at that point, not a lot, but enough so I could fly as an instructor or safety pilot with them. And I began doing that. And about that same time, there was a, the general aviation world had really moved away from tailwheel airplanes. They were kind of shunned, like, you know, if it ain't tin. It ain't an airplane kind of an attitude. <laughs> and um, there was uh, beginning to be a rebirth of, of tailwheel airplanes. When I bought the Cub that uh, my wife and I uh, acquired, we traded a champ for it, by the way. <laughs> well, there's a line in the sand. <laughs> yeah. It was the only J3 Cub at the Hartford Airport. Today, there's uh, either nine or ten flying cubs and two or three project cubs on the field. Uh, and it's just uh, a good example of kind of the, the rebirth in the renewed interest in tailwheel flying. I think a number of pilots have uh, come to the conclusion or that um, it is a good idea to get a little bit of, of tailwheel time because it really does... Uh, improve on or hone your your flight skills and uh, I think probably the biggest thing that really uh, kick-started tailwheel flying was when um, light sport and sport pilot came into existence at that time when that first kicked off there weren't any light sport aircraft out there new and there weren't for about three or four years until manufacturing caught up with it the light sport aircraft that were available at that time were pretty much all tailwheel airplanes. So there was a renewed interest in that. As a result, there was more interest in flying tailwheel airplanes than there was instructors to go around. I could tell you from like 1985 until into the early to mid 90s, I was the only, to the best of my knowledge, the only active tailwheel instructor in all of southeastern Wisconsin. Today, there's not a lot, but there's, as Joe mentioned, uh, just surrounding uh, area, there's any one of probably three or four different uh, flight operations where you can uh, can get some tailwheel instruction now. So I guess what I would say to, to Benjamin then, um, so number one, so Joe, you have some some good news for him. Um, but I think maybe we'd all agree that, uh, Benjamin, if you do have to go a bit further afield, then uh, it, it's worth it. Absolutely. Bottom line. And another thing to look into is um, maybe not in the, maybe you can't find a cub in, or a cub, a tailwheel aircraft, sometimes a cub, uh, in the. Or maybe uh, a champ. Or maybe I a don't champ, know. yeah. Uh, <laughs> if, you know, if you can't find a tailwheel aircraft in a traditional uh, flight school setting uh, where you live, um, take a look at uh, some of your local flying clubs too. 
uh, a lot of a lot of flying clubs uh, will have a, a nice variety of GA aircraft, and, and they might be actually a little bit more GA strictly GA oriented than your typical flight school. A lot of flight schools will operate a 172 or something like that uh, because it's a versatile training platform for higher ratings. Um, so you know. It, it, Going through a uh, a flying club might might give you some opportunities to fly uh, a little bit more of a GA centric fleet where you might have a, a cub or a champ as a, as a as a trainer and kind of a fun local aircraft, uh, and then you might also have uh, something like a 172 or 182 as a more of a general purpose aircraft on the fleet. And if you can't find one, you ought to think about starting one. Absolutely, exactly. Yes. All right. One of the things we do, Hal, um, in our area, is that uh, and I get students from all over the United States. And sometimes from um, some of the European countries, even. I had one from South America here a year ago that came up for a tailwheel endorsement. He owned one of two air, or one of only two cubs in all of Chile. Wow. <laughs> and he wanted to get some tailwheel duel because he and the instructor flew at one time and they wiped out the gear. So. Mm. <laughs> Probably a good time to get some extra instruction. So, yeah. yes. so he came up and spent uh, three or four days with me, and uh, I get pictures now from from him showing me uh, him him flying the Cub. And the gear is fine and after every flight. And the gear is fine, <laughs> and uh, when he was here flying with me, his wife told him that at that time their six-year-old son could never, ever go flying with him. Now he goes flying with him regularly. Great. And there's there's a sidebar to this. I said, well, where do you fly in Chile? He says, well, Steve, it's always north and south. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yes. One of the taller, skinnier countries. <laughs> uh, Steve, uh, before we go, uh, you have been uh, involved in creating uh, a program for people who've uh, been away from tailwheel flying for quite a while. Can you give us just a quick overview of what that's all about? It's uh, a workshop that we put together. It, it all started coming about uh, late in the fall of uh, 2017, Hal, when uh, the FAA uh, safety uh, person, uh, Jurg, came to us and said, we've had a, a number of uh, incidents and accidents in the state of Wisconsin dealing with uh, tailwheel aircraft. Is there something you or we could do about this? So a group of instructors got together, Joe, myself, and uh, two or three other instructors around the state of Wisconsin and started brainstorming. And we came up with this tailwheel workshop. And we ran the first one last Saturday down at Hartford as kind of a trial run to see uh, what kind of reception there would be and uh, what kinds of information uh, we needed to cover and, and so on. And it was uh, a resounding success. We initially thought if we had 25 people, it would be a very successful workshop. We ended up with 105 people. Wow, that's excellent. And we covered things, uh, just we narrowed it down to some basic things and we still ran out of time. We talked about taxiing, taking off, landing, and spent uh, a good portion of time uh, on the technical side of knowing and understanding your tailwheel and how it's supposed to work and how it's supposed to sit on your airplane. Because in many cases we found in these accidents and incidents that happened that it wasn't a pilot error, it was a mechanical error Interesting. blamed on the pilot. 
So the uh, you said you've just done the first one. Uh, there are more of these coming up. Is it, Are they at different locations? Yes. Um, there are locations scattered throughout the state of Wisconsin, and we're doing, uh, what is it, five more of these? Five more, uh, yeah, over the course of the summer, uh, and uh, they're all listed on uh, faasafety.gov. Uh, you go on that website, and you can search by state, and it'll give you where all the different locations are and the times and everything. So, uh, And I know you're going to put it on your website at Cub Air Flight uh, as well, so... The information's out there, and we look forward to having everybody that's interested in getting into tailwheel flying or getting back into tailwheel flying or owns a tailwheel airplane and wants to know a little bit more maybe mechanically about how things are supposed to work or not work, as the case may be, um, that uh, they're all welcome and encouraged to uh, to come to one of these seminars. Well, and I would hope, too, that uh, as, uh, as these things continue, and obviously the popularity, you're off to a really strong start, uh, hopefully we'll see uh, some people in other parts of the country or, or other areas looking at this and maybe wanting to try to replicate that uh, in their region. It's one of those things we're very lucky to have here in Wisconsin. But uh, I, I think, Hal, that uh, based on um, the interest and the receptivity we've had on this, that it's, uh, it's something that will take off regionally and then probably eventually nationally. Uh, and and the EAA is in a great position to do it with a network of chapters throughout the, uh, the entire country to, to work uh, with the chapters to, uh, to put some of these events on around the country. And we're putting it together. This, as I say, the one last Saturday was kind of a trial run to see uh, what we need to, to do differently to, uh, to shorten it and hone in on things. When we first started putting this together, by the time we got all of our thoughts and ideas done on paper, it was going to be about a six-hour, two-day uh, <laughs> workshop. And we tried to narrow it down to about two hours of, of workshop time and then make uh, airplanes and instructors available to do some flying in the afternoon with individuals that wanted to stick around and, and uh, get some dual. Well, that's one of the hardest things to do when you get uh, a bunch of us together talking flying is how do you keep it short? <laughs> and speaking of which, <laughs> we are up against the clock. But, uh, Steve, uh, thank you so much again for taking the time to join us coming up from Hartford and uh, having a great part of uh, a great discussion. Joe, same goes for you, sitting in and uh, and playing guest host today after your stint as a guest. You, I'm uh, working my way up the ladder. Yes, you are. You've had uh, two appearances now. Um, you are... Uh, Fast approaching Jack Pelton, who is uh, gunning for the coveted uh, five appearance green dot blazer. So, um, and I'm sorry, but nobody will beat Jack to that to that uh, that milestone because we all value our jobs. That's right. Is this the one that Arnold Palmer wore that wore that he donated to the museum years ago? Uh, Arnold Palmer wishes he had a blazer this cool. I'm just going to put put that right out there. See what uh, we'll see what happens. Now we'll have to deliver. On that note, uh, everybody, thanks uh, so much for listening. Thanks for the uh, the feedback, for the reviews that we get on iTunes, the the email we get, the comments on the uh, the web posts that go up on our blog. Uh, that means more to us than you could possibly realize. And uh, and those comments and. Uh, Nice reviews are the reasons that we're able to keep doing this. Thanks to uh, Michael Benjamin and Mr. Dumpster for participating on Twitter and sending in some questions. Uh, if uh, everybody else out there uh, likes the idea of doing a green dot mailbag, then uh, keep those things coming. You can contact us uh, uh, via EAA social channels. It's just about everything.com slash EAA, Facebook, Twitter, etc., Instagram. You can also email us at feedback at EAA.org. And uh, until next time then, uh, please keep that those comments coming, the reviews coming, the feedback. Know that uh, we're really grateful for you out there listening. 
and we'll see you that next time when you're cleared to land on the green dot.